Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and today I'm joined by... Steve Austin, Washington Editor. Stephen Hansen, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's pod, European VCs Forbion and Gilda raise record funds. What these funds tell us about European biotech plus the latest in the abortion drug controversy and trade associations and drug companies lay the groundwork for litigation over the Inflation Reduction Act. Today's podcast is brought to you by BioCentury's 23rd Bioequity Europe Conference. It's coming up in a few weeks in Dublin, Ireland. We're expecting record attendance. Register today to meet more than 240 CEOs, 200 VCs, and other decision makers across Biopharma's innovation ecosystem at the industry's premier CEO and investor conference. You can go to bioequityeurope.com to learn more and to register. Alrighty, Stephen, within an hour of one another last week, two of Europe's blue chip Biotech VCs unveiled new funds. Forbion announced Wednesday that it had raised more than 1.3 billion euros across two funds. Its early stage fund, Forbion Ventures Fund 6, raised 750 million euros. That's good for Europe's second largest life sciences fund, behind only the billion dollar or rather billion euro LSP7 fund raised last year. And then Gilda raised 600 million euros for its flagship fund. Its predecessor fund, a little bit over 400 million euros. So that gives you a sense of how much bigger that fund is. Stephen, it's a bear market, and yet European VCs keep raising bigger and bigger funds, setting records for themselves. What do they say about European biotech at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So I think one thing it shows, as, as you kind of rightly point out here, is that top-tier investors are still attracting a lot of capital. Obviously, part of this is you know predicated on the fact that when LPs are looking at funds, they're also looking at track record, and track record for biotech pre 22 was pretty great. Um, and I think some of these funds are still doing decently well over the last year or so. So the top tier funds that, that, that have done very well um, are still attracting a lot of attention. You know, both these funds, both Gildan and, and Forbion had new investors coming in. So I think it still shows that there's a lot of interest in getting into biotech venture, even in a, a rising interest rate environment. The other thing I think it, it shows is that if you look at the data, Europe hasn't caught up to US by any means, but it's it's kept pace in terms of sort of the average amount of capital being raised across venture rounds. So we looked at uh, in our BCIQ database, looked at the Series A to Series C venture rounds, and just from 2019 to you know 2021, that nearly doubled. You know from around 26 million on average in Europe to over 48 million. So. Essentially, what that also shows is that you need to have bigger funds if you want to, at the very least, maintain the amount of ownership that you're going to have in companies going forward. If not, look to increase that ownership stake. I think that also kind of plays in here as well with why we're seeing some bigger funds from these firms. 
Let's dig into their individual strategies. Uh, what does Forbion plan to do now that they have this massive fund? Yep, sure. So the, as you said, the flagship fund, the uh, 4BN Venture 6, 750 million euros. So they're still looking to target around roughly about 15 companies. Obviously, part of that's going to be just being able to write larger tickets for each investment. But they also are really kind of looking at doing, not that they didn't do it before, but really doing more on the company creation side. So about a third of those companies are going to be internally created within 4BN. And that's one thing where they've really kind of beefed up. Talking to Sanders Lutwig, their managing partner, he had noted how, you know, just over the last couple of years, they'd nearly doubled the number of operating and venture partners in-house at Forbion that'll be focused on company creation. And while he kind of bristled at my at my comparison to the likes of, you know, a flagship pioneering or or an arch, he said there is some similarities in the sense that, you know, they're really going to look to build companies that have more capital put behind them given more opportunity to mature so that really when they're bringing them out to look for an investment syndicate, they're much closer in proximity to clinical data. So really creating more value for these company creation opportunities. And then as he sort of said, kind of when they do come out for an investment, coming out with more of a bang. How about the growth fund, Stephen? Sure. So yeah, the growth fund also, this is a 600 million euro fund, their second growth fund. Despite the down markets and everyone, you know, talking about how potentially undervalued public equities are and, you know, how many companies are under cash, they're still looking to target the vast majority of this fund at late stage private investments. But they are able to allocate about 20% to public equities. And so I think given where the public markets are now, I think they're going to be spending quite a bit of time trying to find these companies. You know, as Sandra said, there are plenty of companies out there that are under cash and they're under trading under cash for good reasons. But there are also some companies that, for whatever reason, maybe had a small setback on the clinical trial, but there's still good fundamentals, other good fun- good science, good leadership. There's still, in his estimation, still plenty of really good investment opportunities on the public side where you could potentially get some really good value. I think that's where they'll be spending some of their time for the growth fund as well. Excellent. Well, let's turn to Gilda. What is happening with their strategy? Any shifts for them? Sure. So this is a... Uh, for Gilda, this is a venture and growth fund, 600 million euros, as you mentioned, is you know considerably larger than their last their last fund, and um, so they had uh, Yut Muhers joined, I believe it was a couple of years ago now. He's leading sort of the public equities investment strategy, and so it's really as they termed kind of a dynamic allocation strategy, where while the majority of it will still be on venture, you know, I think it'll be opportunistic as well, depending on the markets depending on how much they invest sort of looking at public versus private. And I think the other thing that they're really looking to leverage is, so they just announced last year a uh, impact council that is led by the former uh, executive director of EMA, uh, Guido Razi, and several other sort of big name people in there who are looking at health economics, looking at patients, looking at regulatory. And so I think they're, they're really seeing that as a great opportunity to leverage that expertise and, and insight, both on the diligence side when they're looking at new investments and on, you know, helping their portfolio companies, you know, have an edge in terms of how they plan clinical trials, select products, you know, build a product profile, these sorts of things. So I, I think they really think that that is going to translate into better returns for them and for their LPs. And so part of that will be focusing on making investments where they can really help drive the company to 
a major value inflection point. Often that's going to probably be clinical POC. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how how they uh, they go over the next couple of years as well in terms of how they allocate this based on the market dynamics. Stephen has uh, stories on both of these fundraises up on biocentry.com. You can check them out there. And obviously, we'll be watching to see what picks these companies make in the uh, coming months and weeks. Let's turn to Washington, where the Supreme Court on Friday, it ruled that access to mifepristone, the abortion drug, will be preserved as the appeal process plays out. Steve, what does this mean? Well, basically, it kicked the can down the road. Yeah. And it was a big kick. (laughs) (laughs) Give me down a long road. So uh, they sent the decision back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then they also said, though, that whatever the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals does will not go into effect if either party appeals it back to the Supreme Court, which is pretty likely to happen, certain to happen. And then the Supreme Court will decide whether it's going to take the case or not. If the Supreme Court doesn't take the case, then whatever the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals does is going to go into effect. If the Supreme Court does take the case, which I think most people think is likely, then everything will be on hold pending whatever the Supreme Court does. That, from a practical point of view, that means we're not likely to see anything happen until probably a year more from now. On the other hand, the big fundamental questions are still uh, hanging out there, and we we don't know the answer to them. And that, that question for the biopharma industry, setting aside the issues about access to abortion drugs, is whether courts can and should second-guess FDA's decisions on scientific and medical issues. We just don't know what uh, what's going to come out there. And I think that, you know, as we've discussed on the podcast and as I've written in BioCentury, that has enormous implications for FDA and for the companies that produce products that are regulated by the FDA and ultimately for patients who, who need to use those products. So looks like status quo for the time being then. It's status quo, but I'd say there's still, it's status quo with some uncertainty. Of course, there's nothing to stop another company or, I mean, another set of physicians or or groups, uh, other kinds of groups from suing FDA involving other kinds of products than uh, Mifepristone. Um, Now, I mean, you'd think maybe they will wait to see how this all plays out but maybe they won't. I wouldn't be surprised to see other litigation filed, perhaps in the same Texas district court about any number of other kinds of drugs, maybe about COVID drugs, you know, as we've discussed before, maybe about neuropsychiatric drugs. Um, So there's this uncertainty that's still hanging out there. And I would also say that there's another issue, which is that in, um, in making the decision that it did, the Supreme Court didn't really explain why it did it, But Justice Alito did make some comments. He dissented from it. And one of the reasons that he said that he dissented was because he didn't believe that FDA could be trusted to do whatever it is that the courts told them to do. He didn't cite any evidence for that. And that's really um, an extraordinary claim. And I think it's one more thing, kind of one more way that the courts and some elements in, in the political system are chipping away at confidence in FDA and an FDA regulation. 
All right, let's turn to another story you've been following quite closely, and that's the Inflation Reduction Act, Steve. Companies and trade associations such as Bio and Pharma have been filing comments about CMS's draft guidance for implementing the IRA. Steve, I know it's there were quite a few comments, and you've been taking a look into these. What have you learned so far? Yeah, there are. I think there are a lot of comments. The interesting thing is, is we don't have any idea how many comments were filed because CMS hasn't made them public. So the only ones we know about are ones that organizations or individuals have chosen to disclose either by posting them on the internet or because people like me have asked them and they've uh, agreed to give them to us to look at. Having said that, one of the things that's clear from looking at the comments that were filed by the two trade associations, by Pharma and by Bio, and also by a number of the companies, is that there's going to be litigation. I think there's going to be a blizzard of litigation against CMS, and I think it's going to come in waves. And I don't just think this. I've been told by people who are close to the trade associations that that's exactly what they're planning to do. Uh, The first set of litigation, I think, is going to be procedural. So CMS is implementing or trying to implement the Inflation Reduction Act using guidance instead of the normal notice and comment rulemaking procedures. It's doing that because it's much, much faster than doing it through notice and comment and because it might subject them to less risk of litigation prior to finalizing the rules. So in their uh, comments, Pharma said no, that uh, CMS is incorrect to state that they are exempt from uh, the normal requirements for notice and comment rulemaking. And so that suggests that CMS is going to be sued. And I I believe that's going to happen. It's probably going to happen in June or July. Another thing that's interesting is that CMS, in its draft guidance, said, well, some of the elements in the draft guidance are not draft, they're final. We're not accepting comment on them. It's a done deal because we need to meet the congressional deadline for selecting the first drugs for the price negotiation program by September 1. We're not accepting any comments on the criteria we're using for selecting those, that first cohort of drugs, the 10 drugs. I think that's also something that's going to be subject to litigation. Another issue that's likely to be subject to litigation has a great deal of importance, and we've talked about that on the podcast also, is the CMS decision to lump all of the drugs that have the same active ingredient or active moiety together for purposes of price regulation and to use the approval date of the first one, of the oldest one, is the tripwire for the countdown to eligibility for price negotiation. There are comments that, again, the trade associations and some other entities have uh, filed saying that that violates the clear uh, language of the IRA, and I think that's certain to be subject to litigation. A third uh, issue that's going to be in this first wave of litigation is this, this, the penalties. The IRA basically forces companies to comply with the negotiation process or what the drug companies are calling the price setting process by imposing massive fines on them, massive penalties if they don't do it. And what Pharma and some of the other groups have said in their comments is that the scale of those penalties is actually so large that it violates their constitutional rights. So I think those those areas are certain to be uh, litigated. There's a third issue, or I mean, a fourth issue um, that's likely to be litigated, 
which is the way that CMS has described how it's going to comply with the exemption for products that are derived from plasma or whole blood. It's a little bit ambiguous, actually, in the draft guidance, exactly how CMS plans to do that. Some of the companies that have developed CAR T therapies or are developing CAR T therapies think that the language should be much more explicit to indicate that they are exempt. And if they don't get that, I, I think it's likely that one or another of them is going to sue um, CMS to get that clarity. Steve, it, you know, related to that ambiguity, how much deference do the courts typically give to CMS or, or to government agencies just in terms of how they interpret the legislation? I mean, what, what, what sort of precedent should we expect there? There's two sets of issues. There are the sets of issues where there are people who claim that CMS has just violated the IRA or they violated the Constitution. And then there's, as you say, there's um, their discretion about how they interpret it. In the past, uh, the courts have given federal agencies a great deal of deference to interpret laws that are ambiguous. That hasn't been the case in uh, more recent years. And I don't think that CMS can count on uh, the courts, especially the Supreme Court, giving them a great deal of deference at how they interpret ambiguity. Is that something we should expect sort of the industry lawsuits and, and lawyers to try and leverage then? They're going to leverage everything they can, right? Sure. And, and, and so and the, the litigation, I think some of it, there's some efforts they're going to try to just derail the whole price negotiation scheme. There are other uh, litigation that's going to try to delay it. And then there's other litigation that's going to try to, to modify it. So all those strategies are going to be used. Well, Steve, other than trying to get CMS to change the IRA through litigation, what's, what's interesting in the comments that you've seen? A number of the comments that I've seen suggest ways that CMS can implement or should implement the price negotiation provisions to either to mitigate the adverse effects on innovation or even to encourage certain kinds of um, innovation. So I think it gets down, part of it gets down to a, um, a fundamental kind of philosophical idea, which actually Pharma had in their comments, which is that they, they say that the way that CMS plans to implement the IRA suggests that CMS is looking at this in a kind of a cost plus approach. They're saying that, they're, that CMS is looking at it the way that, for example, defense contracting is done, where they look at whatever the cost of production of something is, and then they give them a percentage on top of that for their profit margin. Pharma says fundamentally that's the wrong way to look at it. That's not the way that the biopharmaceutical industry works. And so they ask CMS to kind of rethink that. The uh, Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy, that's an organization run by Mark McClellan, the former administrator of CMS and a former FDA commissioner, they point out in their comments that the prices that CMS is going to be negotiating are for drugs that will have been on the market for seven years in the case of small molecules and for 11 years in the case of uh, biologics. So what Duke Margola says is that this should be a way to leverage the generation of real-world evidence, and that CMS should reward that by setting up explicit criteria for saying, if companies provide certain kinds of real-world evidence about the effectiveness 
and um, safety of their products, particularly in comparison to all therapeutic alternatives, that they will be rewarded with higher prices in the price negotiations for doing that. The other thing that I note is that some of the companies use the comments as opportunities to show what they believe are the negative effects of the IRA. So there's a company called Turns Pharmaceuticals, for example. They noted that they're developing a small molecule drug that could treat two orphan diseases, chronic myeloid leukemia and Philadelphia chromosome positive acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL. And they've said that because the law creates an exemption for drugs that are approved for one orphan indication and only one orphan indication, they're going to drop the ALL indication. They're only going to pursue the drug in the United States for CML. RA Capital noted that they're an investor in a company called Aravate Therapeutics that's developing an inhaled version of imatinib to treat pulmonary arterial hypertension. And they asked in their comment whether multiple orphan indications for oral imatinib, which has been approved for CML and for gastric cancer and for other indications, are going to preclude them from getting the single orphan exemption for Aravate's product. So it's a, it's a little bit complicated there, but there's a kind of a fundamental issue in how CMS is going to interpret the law there that could have a profound effect on the commercial viability of that product. I suspect that there are a bunch of other companies that have submitted similar comments that ask for clarity or ask for interpretation of the law in ways that will allow their products to have an exemption from, from the IRA's price setting provisions and also to have that clarity about it up front so they can get the investment that they need to continue to um, develop those products. Obviously, incredibly complicated stuff. Uh, I invite our listeners to check out Steve's articles on biocentry.com. He's written a ton so far that, that really illuminates these issues. He has been talking to people nonstop for months now to get clarity on, on what these issues are. We also put on a webinar with Putnam. If you go to biocenturyira.com, you can tune into this free webinar. Steve moderates it with a group of biopharma innovators, lawyers, and uh, they really dig into the issues uh, and it should help you get up to speed quite quickly. We'll continue to talk about this on the pod for uh, for some time, I, I imagine. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, Steve. Stephen, thank you for joining me today. Pendle Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We will catch you next week. <laughs>